everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's Schools of Culture, History and Language and of Archaeology and Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Julia Brown. Together with my fellow familiar strangers, I've got Simon Theobald on my right. Hello. Jodie Lee Trambert. Hi all. And Dr. Patrick McCartney. Hello. Dr. Patrick McCartney is filling in for the wonderful Ian Pollock. And Patrick is currently doing a postdoc at Kyoto University, his research being on the global yoga industry in Japan. Welcome, Pat. Thank you. Okay, so let's get going. Simon, what have you been thinking about this week? So I have been thinking about what role anthropology can play in good governance. The backstory to this is that, once again, the drums of war are in the White House, and it is possible that the US will be heading to another Middle East conflagration. And I've been thinking about what I might do to stop that. And aside from tweeting to Donald Trump, which has thus far had no no obvious effect whatsoever, <laughs> I've been wondering what role can an anthropologist play in trying to make sure there is good governance? And does anthropology have play a role in good governance? I would like to think that at least one of the outcomes of my research would be that there was not a war between the United States and Iran. But anthropology obviously has a lot of different applications, and some of those definitely could be for the work of state. So what do you guys think? Is there a role for anthropology in government and anthropologists in government? Yes, is the short answer. But No is the long answer? Yes. Well, I, <laughs> hmm. I think we need to collaborate more, though. With whom? Other anthropologists and people from other disciplines as well. That's probably the only way that we're going to build more traction when it comes to public policy. Can I ramp that up a level? Mm -hmm. I think we need to think beyond disciplines and universities. I think there is a role for anthropologists, but not if they just keep talking to other people within universities. And that's, for the most part, what we mostly do. So unless, as a discipline, we are willing to step outside our disciplinary mores and our disciplinary boundaries and make ourselves indispensable to people who have power in government, then no, we are not going to be useful. And that's a really hard call. How do you make anthropology indispensable? Basically by making the humanities valuable. And how do you do that? Well, nobody's worked it out yet this century. So are we going to war? Jody's answer is yes. How's that for Well, that's, that's really depressing. Yeah. Um, Dr. Patrick McCartney, do you have any thoughts on this matter? Well, I mean... Yes. If, I, <laughs> I do, yes. I have lots of thoughts and there's words not coming out of my mouth. I mean, you're an anthropologist, but then you get criticised for not being a true political scientist, right? So it gets really parochial. I instantly thought about, um, you know, David Graeber and Occupy Wall Street. And yeah. It seems to have done good things for his career, but initially it didn't. I mean, I think maybe it starts with like where you start instilling thoughts about diversity, different cultures into people. And I think if we were starting to teach anthropological thought at the primary school level, I mean, most people haven't heard of anthropology until they get to university or Or ever. Yeah, I think that is (laughs) at the heart of the problem as well, Joe. 
It seems at a symbolic level, like anthropology and anthropologists are kind of chameleon-like. You know, we, we have this uh, ability to adapt to other domains and and be relevant in some way. You know, if someone asked me 12 months ago, I would say, oh, I'm a linguistic anthropologist. If you asked me today, I'd say I'm a political anthropologist. Even my identity to myself at a career level is kind of confusing. But if we could find a way to celebrate that malleability. Yeah, that's, what, I, that's that what I'm trying to say. That would sell yeah. anthropology, you know, that we can be chameleons and so adapt to different needs sorry, of Joseph. the moment. No, no. What do we think the advantages of anthropology are for this context? I mean, you say, can we play a role? Why do we think we should? What do you think you bring to the Iran situation that your research could help with? I don't, I don't want to blow my own trumpet. So it's, really, it's actually really not about what I per se can bring. It's about the role that... What I take as, as the kind of given thing in anthropology is the long-term research, right? Long-term, intimate research. And I think that rather than selling it as inherently a matter of like... Oh, we research the dust under people's feet and so on, which... Wait, what? So there's, there's, a, there's a metaphor, you know, that anthropology is the dust under people's feet. It's not the big picture. It's the very micro picture, right? Okay. I've never heard that. But I think in, in doing that, we kind of sell ourselves short by saying, oh, well, anthropology doesn't say much about broader systems and we leave that to political science or sociology and so on. And every anthropologist I know has, like, you know, has secretly has it in for political science. So we really should be participating in these kind of broader... I mean, I guess Julia is right you're, and Jody is right. You're all right. We should be participating in a broader disciplinary conversation. But I think we need to make what is good about anthropology its selling point, which is its capacity to do long-term intimate research. And the grassroots level uh, yeah. analysis does appeal to public policymakers. It's just it requires a lot more resources and time. But and, there's but also there's no it reason... It is valued, I think. I think there's any reason why there's no reason why it can't be scaled up either. There's no reason why there shouldn't be a chief anthropologist to the government who says, "Look, I'm going to collate all these very diff- various different bits of research that people have done. I'm going to say to you, you know, don't do blah because our research shows that it's not a good idea to do blah. whatever X is." Yeah, it would also help if the I mean, governments get given research all the time, and mm. it might not fit in with their ideology, and so they ignore it. So that's also another hurdle to kind of consider how to sell anthropology. Well, maybe if the president (laughs) had done anthropology in primary school. He probably wouldn't be the president. (laughs) (laughs) What a note to end Uh, on. (laughs) It was so uplifting for a moment. (laughs) Jody, what have you been thinking about this week? I have been thinking about the unintended consequences of digital disruption. And digital disruption is a bit of a a buzzword at the moment, right? So basically all it really means is that we now have technologies that disrupt the way that we've always done things. An example of that would be Uber. You don't catch taxis anymore. You have an app on your phone. You get an Uber. And I saw a post on Facebook the other day, and it was about Uber Eats. And the woman who posted it, said that she hadn't realised that the takeaway stores and for our American listeners, that's not what you guys call that, is it? You know, the the kebab 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 shops that sell kebabs, when when they use Uber Eats, they have to give up 25% of their profits to Uber Eats, but they're not allowed contractually to increase their own prices to account for that. So it's really affecting local businesses because they're making a lot less money because people really like 
the convenience of not having to leave their homes. And I am a shut-in personally. I really don't like leaving my house. So I totally get that. And I really like those digital disruptions that allow me to not leave the house. But at the same time, there are discourses and valid discourses that question whether we are becoming a society of shut-ins. So my question for you is what do you see as the unintended consequences of digital disruptions like Uber, Airbnb, or even like online lecturing systems that allow students to stay home? What are the unintended consequences of that? And are they really all negative? Surely some of them must be positive in a non-hedonistic way. Okay, well, I'm going to hypothesize that we're not only going to become a society of shut-ins, we're going to become a society of hedonistic, exploitative shut-ins who take the worst of humanity and foister. I mean, because that's what Uber does in some ways, right? Why? Why? Yeah. Because it takes people, it throws them into the ultimate neoliberal free market contractual relationship where it's like one dude versus a big company and they negotiate the terms, which are always pretty rubbish. There's no collective bargaining power. And then you shunt them from one house to a restaurant and vice versa and on and on and on again forever on a relatively low wage. To me, it just seems like neoliberal dystopia written in the present. I find myself thinking about the superficial sociality that this creates, right? But I'm also thinking of people who are otherwise socially disconnected. And I think things like Uber Eats and other ways of interacting on the internet and just having quick face-to-face interactions with people as opposed to at length could be the difference between them being completely cut off and and functionally cut off. off. So I was going to say the ultimate question is do we decide that the good outweighs the bad or the other way around? But actually I think the question is given how convenient it is would we be willing to give it up? And I think the answer to that is probably no, right? Yeah, the horse is bolted. Yeah. And it would be chaos to try and disrupt that system mm. now. <laughs> Which maybe that chaos is coming with Simon's war. So just I don't the... think it, I don't think calling it my war <laughs> is like a particularly positive. <laughs> I actually was the other day trying to find a, an app that would allow me to scan someone's body for the health of their chakras. Oh. You know? Oh, you know? my God. Yeah. Because, Did you find one? Uh, well, not really. You can, you can find apps that will help tune your chakras. It's interesting because the, uh, the original kind of people that wrote these tantric texts, so the chakras don't really appear till the 6th century. And the, the six chakra systems kind of systematized and being taught systematically about by the ninth century. And basically, they kind of more or less say that these things aren't real. They don't have an independent ontological reality of their own. They're to be imagined. Wow. They're a visual aid, right? But then fast forward to... Like 2001. This, well, the start of the 20th century. And there was an earlier text that was translated and then it kind of entered into the New Age imagination. And so, you know, you have vehement believers that chakras are real. And then, you know, epistemic relativism kicks in. It's my opinion. It's my experience. And, uh, <laughs> you know. My chakras are real and yours aren't. Well, no, I mean, just the fact that they are real. And, you know, I mean, but the thing is that they're mapped over like physical seats of emotion and energy. And some people, it's a really important thing. I'm thinking about how actually what digital disruptions might mean is that our imagination and our superstition and our beliefs in various systems, such as that described through chakras, could be destroyed through relying more and more on digital objectivity, Mm -hmm. so-called objectivity. 
Anyway, we best move on. Pat, what have you been thinking about this week? Uh, so I've been thinking about Facebook. A couple of years ago, I, I went deep into Twitter and that was interesting. And then I moved into Facebook because I, I had no research money. Yeah, that's a good reason. Uh, so I, Online research. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. This, this, was, this was my kind of hack to that situation. I got introduced to all these different Facebook yoga groups. And very quickly, I realized that it's just this amazing kind of heterotopian worlds within worlds. Heterotopian? Heterotopian. What does that mean? Well, I mean, the idea is more or less that there are different worlds that can exist within worlds or parallel to different social worlds. But so I started getting involved and actively participating in a kind of cyber ethnographic way. And and you you were talking before, Simon, I mean, uh, about, you know, how you can affect policy in some way. The kind of thing that I've been trying to do is use my kind of, I'm I'm somewhat insider and outsider. I taught yoga for 20 odd years. I guess it's, uh, my question is about cyber ethnography and how the ethics of navigating that space, if you do use it as a modality for research. How do you go about getting consent from people? Yeah, okay. So there's 30,000 people in like one group. It's a, it's flame wars. Like, I mean, people are invested in these identities. Are they people? They're Russian bots. Look, some of them, I'm not sure, (laughs) to be honest, but you get a lot of, you get a lot of trolls that are in there just to, and so you actually get people getting recruited from other groups, getting people, come and like help back me up, like literally using terms, like come and back me up and like protect what yoga is about kind of thing. And so, so I wrote a, I wrote a paper about politics and yoga based on some ethnography in a, in a yoga group on Facebook. And I, I, I tried to be as, as clear as I could. You know, I would say, look, every now and again, like I'm doing this for research. This is a research question. And some people did care when the paper came out. So there were people that were definitely incensed and felt kind of betrayed. And it's like, wait, I mean. I think it was Laura Nader, a paper in the 70s, where she talked about the ethics in anthropology of observing public spaces and basically said it's free reign. But then I've heard other arguments too where it really depends on context. If you're quoting people who are speaking on social media for a social justice reason and they're putting themselves in danger by doing it and you quoting them is going to put them in increased danger without you seeking their consent then that is pretty shady. And, I mean, we're essentially talking about taking away recruitment, which to me is problematic. Like, I see what you're saying, that it is legitimate to use information that's out in the public realm, but at the same time, what our participants tell us, knowing that they're already participating in a study, counts. Do you know what I mean? It gives them autonomy to decide what they disclose and what they don't disclose based on the fact that it's going in a research study. Okay, so moving on to what I've been thinking about this week. I've been thinking about how culture shapes love and I'm wondering about the importance that we place on romantic love. Margaret Mead said that anthropologists invite trouble when we're trying to logically explain love, but to ignore it would be undermining what it is to do anthropology. There's a lot of literature on the anthropology of love. For example, anthropologist Jarrett Segon has written about love as a moral experience in regard to how it helps people remake themselves. At a societal level, the philosopher Michael Hart has looked at the concept of love as a political tool in regard to how it transforms people through differences rather than unification. And then going back to lived experiences, the biological anthropologist Helen Fisher, who some listeners may be familiar with 
um, from her TED Talks. She talks about how romantic love is an addiction, but a universal craving involving dopamine, and hence the effect of new love on the brain being similar to cocaine. So I've been thinking about the notion of self-completeness through love, and I'm not sure that it's fair to think that everyone would benefit from romantic love as opposed to investing in less intensive forms. How has our culture shaped this notion of finding or having what is described as our other half or even a better half sometimes, especially if being in a partnered or even polyamorous relationship doesn't necessarily mean codependence or even romantic love. I can't help but have that song in my head. Well, I think music is one of the big cultural influences. What is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt yes, me. Absolutely. It's also a bit of a post-enlightenment move. I mean, mm. people didn't get married, for instance, for love a few centuries ago, they got married to protect property mm. and dynasty. And acquire property. Yeah. A wife. And I adopt a very kind of queer epistemology in general. And I'm always, when someone says something and it, I've just got this contrarian bent, I can't help but kind of flip it instantly. And I, when thinking about how love brings people together, I instantly think about how love, you know, that kind of pathological side of love. And this kind of bleeds into this. Have you heard of like pathological altruism? No. People who can't stop giving things away. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's kind of similar to spiritual bypassing. And these are two key things I work with in, in how people more or less from an in-group perspective are able to rationalize and forgive. Not, it's not even forgiving because you don't see these transgressions of like, say, the charismatic authority figure as, as necessarily they've done something wrong. So it's pathological in the sense that you, you're you able to just overlook or bypass around these challenging, difficult things. And so, yeah, I mean, love love has – it's not just like love in a fluffy, I'm going to cuddle you to death kind of way. Or maybe it is. Or maybe is. it is, right? <laughs> get, people get super obsessive and jealous and – so is is the question about romance or is it about the normativity of two people? The romance more than the normativity of two people. So this idea that you have to have an intense I don't even want to say desire. Kind of like Romeo we can't and explain Juliet. it. Have a go at mm. explaining it, Simon. Explaining love. Yes. Love. Yes. <laughs> there's a great there's a great film. There's a great Iranian film called um Entrance of Men is Forbidden, and it's about this really uptight female teacher who basically they try and make her fall in love with someone in the hope that she'll become a nicer person. And she has this great thing where she she says, you know, love, love, what is love? There is only love between – there's only two types, two types of love. Love between a child and its mother and love between an individual and God. There is nothing else. Everything else is just a hormonal imbalance, and if you have that problem, you should take a cold shower. It's very funny. Um <laughs> Everything is cultural, right? Every, absolutely everything we do is basically cultural. You, you try and cut down to the things that aren't cultural, you come up with, like, nothing. So I find it hard to conceive of how we could think of something without. But what are the key cultural influences for how we conceive of? You and me. <laughs> All of us. Yeah, well, probably Pat's right. Like, this, this whole post-enlightenment notion of individuals having particular wants and desires and so on, and that they can be met by a single other person. Seems to get... I, I can't help but think about neoliberalism and how... Damn it. Where, yeah... <laughs> 
we're told we're kind of incomplete. Why are we told that? That, you know, we need to exactly. have someone else this that is my completes problem. us. And then mm. that makes me think about, okay, you're talking about romantic love, so maybe this is a bit different, but how, how much I can actually know someone else. And is, is knowing someone else yeah. love? Exactly. Well, you what know, does it mean to connect with somebody? Yeah, because I, I mean, I don't know who I am. I mean, you work on schizophrenia and stuff, right? So I, I don't know if what the world tells me I am is matches up with who I am. And then it, if you break it down, like you know, you talk, we talk amongst each other. You go to another country, and then like your identity keeps shifting depending on the context that you're in. And so I think like love also shifts in context. So. We're all actually just brains in jars. I was so waiting oh, for you to say that. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Monkeys flying around space. I'm not sure that you all exist. As a as a true solipsist, I can only be certain that I... Are you truly solipsistic? No. <laughs> you are too. Am it I comes up every time we, like, I knew that this was where this conversation was I, going. I think, well, solipsism is at least... An, is, is at least a theory of ontology and of the mind that you can count on. Listeners, I'm going to ask Simon to explain what, well, what a solipsism is and why he is one because he talks about it all the freaking time and we always have to cut it out. So, Simon, please, for the record. It's a theory of mind, basically, but it also becomes a theory of ontology. It says that the only mind that you can know exists for certain is your own, which means that everything else out there is part of my imaginative world. Do you spruce it up with just a, a sprinkle of nihilism as well? Or? <laughs> yeah. They seem to kind of... <laughs> isn't so it, isn't it a bit sad yeah. that if, if this world is my imagination... Yeah, it's really sad. My, it's really sad. My imagination is. Yes. Uh, Do better, Simon. <laughs> as okay. figments of your We're imagination, gonna... <laughs> we command you. Thank you all for <laughs> another... <laughs> very provocative conversation we better wrap it up now i want to thank simon theobald thank you jody lee tremba thank you patrick mccartney thank you very much and i am julia brown today's episode was produced by all of us at the familiar strange subscribe to the familiar strange podcast you can find us at itunes and all the other familiar places you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet us at tfs tweets or look us up on facebook and instagram Music was by Pete Dabro. Find a link to his EP on the show notes. Special thanks to Julia Miller, Will Grant, Nick Trembath and Maud Rowe. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, keep talking strange. Or don't keep talking at all because none of us are really here. When I go to sleep, you all disappear. (laughs) Simon.